You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. All get together around our videos and our different platforms, the receivers, and it's uh, that time uh, where we join our senior attorney, Ashraf Isup, on legal talk after after many, many moons. And uh, let's welcome you and Ashraf Isup with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, Ashraf, tell me how you're doing this fine, beautiful evening. Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. All is well. It's a beautiful evening, like you say. And we've just come out of a beautiful a, a month of really so much of blessing that we can't even count it, you know. And then we had the great celebration of Eid. And Alhamdulillah has, uh, has shown us uh, a very, very great blessing in the Eid as well. So really a tremendous uh, time for us all, Shabbat. Uh, time of reflection, education, knowledge, light and barakah. So we're extremely grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have given us that opportunity. And I hope um, you are doing well as well, Shabbat. No, Alhamdulillah, uh, you know, I tell you, Ashraf, uh, with, uh, you know, having a brother like you that uh, motivates me, inspires me also, uh, you know, keeps me on the straight and narrow. And I think uh, this is what uh, we should be all about as uh, Muslim brothers, you know, where we find each other maybe lagging or in the spirituality, we're not making the mark, but we should be motivating each other. And, you know, I liked uh, you, you sent me a message the other day. And uh, you said, you know, your true friends are those that will never support your sinful actions just to make you happy in this uh, temporary world. And you go on to say true friends are those who stand by your side and they uh, and they are concerned with helping your faith grow stronger. And you just go on and on. And that is absolutely true. Today, you know, uh, you, you find a friend, uh, you know, you're someone that you grew up with and, uh, you know, uh, as the years go by. But you notice uh, that uh, just to keep the uh, status quo, to keep him, you know, happy, and you know he's doing wrong, but you just let it be. Uh, that shouldn't be the case, Ashraf. You see, the, 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 there's a thing that you'd rather sit alone than in bad company. But you'd rather sit with good company than to sit alone. So it goes a little bit deeper. You see, they say you must sit with people or be with people um, that remind you of Allah. Because when they remind you of Allah, then they get you, they bring you closer to Allah. So all of this is, is part of the journey, you know, whether you're in the Jamaat, you're sitting in the Jamaat, or you, you're doing uh, an activity in the Jamaat. Uh, I don't mean the Tablik Jamaat, I mean the Jamaat itself. And these things, you know, like like you saw in the in the Ramadan, right? Is going to the Taraweeh or going to the Fajr or finishing the Quran or going to listen. It was all in Jamaat, you know, it was a very exciting time. And then come the end of this whole thing, like uh, last Friday was was a big anticlimax, you know, all of a sudden it was oh uh we're doing Isha and then you're doing Witter on your own all of a sudden. So it is the Jamaat that strengthens you 
and it is uh, people of good company and good knowledge. I think knowledge is, is a very, very, very big factor here, Shafat, um, to sit with people of knowledge because they remind you of Allah and they teach you of Allah. And it is those things that you basically anchor your life with. Uh, because whatever, I remember the uh, Sheikh once saying, you see, that you mustn't give in to the issues of the day. Because like the winds come and blow everything away, these issues too will pass. But you have to remain steadfast in the understanding that you came from your Creator and you're going back to him, and that is the journey. So along the way, you know, you get signposts, you get people that help you, you get signs, but very, very important, as you say, to enjoy the company of the learned and the awliya and those that bring you closer to your creator. That is, I think, the, the, the essence of life. Ashraf, you know, I, I, I got into deep thoughts there because whilst you were talking and I could feel eyes of the noble Quran, uh, you know, backing you up. And uh, as you talk about knowledge, you know, you say, Rabbi, Zidni, Ilma, O oh Allah, increase me in knowledge. And then uh, you go on uh, to talk about, you know, the ayat that, uh, you know, everyone that makes farda from the dunya and you always every day, every uh, you know, minutes someone saying, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. From Allah we come, and unto Allah shall we return. And whilst we live in this uh, temporary world, um, you know, how much of thought should we be giving to, you know, death uh, whilst we are going about uh, doing our other types of, 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 of work? There should be a mizan. And how do you get your mizan right, uh, Ashraf? Interesting that you asked that, Shafat. I, I, I think... What I came across in the week was quite stunning. It was a small uh, message from I don't know who, but this man narrates that uh, there, was a, there was a man who said every dua of his was answered. And, and, and so the man asked him, but how? And, and he said, look, I do astaghfar repeatedly up to about 30,000 a day. And that uh, meant that whatever he wanted, he got so, you know, I don't think for me personally, it's a preoccupation of death. Of course, you take it into account that you will die and meet your creator. But you meet your creator in the way that you love. So I found inspiration in that. And I've been trying this uh, astakfar all the time because, you know, you're looking, you're looking for that zikr that you can do, whether you're driving, sitting in the car, or even sitting in company and talking. But you are still with your Lord doing astaghfar. And for this person, that, that experience of astaghfar meant every single dua was answered. So the, the narrator says, whether you want to get out of debt, whether you want to get married, whether you want to get whatever, whatever your needs are. The astaghfar is a cleansing and the astaghfar brings you closer to your creator. So I found that. For me, it wasn't a reflection of waiting for death because death is, is inevitable. But it was it was living that moment. I mean, I don't think there's a greater example of being closer to Allah uh, than the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There was an incidence where he 
uh, took off a ring and he threw it, you see, and the Sahaba jumped into the sand to look for it because, you know, he was so precious to them that anything that came from him, including the water that dripped from him when he did wudu, they would grab it. I mean, that was the kind of dedication and love they had for him because he brought Allah to them, you know, and, and, they, and they were eternally grateful, which is, which is part of what, what we were talking about earlier, is to, is to have knowledge of Allah because, I mean, it all really goes back to the Nabi Sallallahu and, and what he gave us, especially the Quran that came through him. And so he threw this ring and the Sahaba jumped in and he said, what would you jump after something that in the moment that he turned it, he was distracted from the remembrance of Allah. I mean, I don't think you can get a better example of someone that was totally immersed with Allah and who completely operated in the world as a husband, as a fighter, as a commander, as a teacher, as a parent. I mean, you can take any description of the Rasul and he fitted it, you know, wisdom, simplicity, happiness. They, I remember men saying, why is it that we can't even adopt the Sunnah of smiling? The, the, you know, people come out of the inner world and they're full of complaints and scrawls and the Prophet was always smiling, always. I mean, can you imagine what a great personality that was. And so we, we kind of revert to our to our earlier, you know, that the Sahaba would never tire of sitting with him. Uh, they loved him and he loved them. But imagine, Shafat, he loved us and he said his ummah now and in the future. So we are always, always uh, indebted to him. And, and in his, I mean, we were always in uh, foremost in his mind. So if you ask me what anchors me, I, I now say I came across this because look, there is an ayat in the Quran that fits everyone. Uh, I mean, it's not the one, same one for everyone. Some people hang on to other people hang on to husband Allah. Other people hang on to simply Yasin. So whatever you find is your anchor. Uh, or the Durud is a very, very powerful anchor. You know, you, even if you just say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it's a great anchor. But I thought that um, the, this little lesson of Astaghfar is a great one because I also found that Astaghfar prevents you from doing wrong. So you're making Astaghfar for things that have already been there. But when you make astaghfar, it actually gives you an armor against uh, wrongdoing. That is my own personal experience in this last week, Shabbat. Uh, brilliant indeed, and a lovely conversation there. I, you know, I, I recall many years ago when I was a Sheikh Ahmadi, that's editor, and I saw many different types of individuals uh, coming and visiting me in my office. And I remember there was this old gentleman uh, that came somewhere from uh, the Middle East, and in, in his broken English, you know, he told me, you know, you must read, you must read A'uzu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajim Bismillah Rahman Rahim all the time because you're surrounded by fitna and fasad and all that whilst you make that 
Allah will keep away the shaitan from you. But as you said, uh, different strokes for different people. But the noble Quran is there and the message of uh, Nabi Muhammad sallallahu is there. And that one ayat again, uh, Ashraf, Allah, Rasul. Obey Allah and obey his uh, messenger. And Alhamdulillah, you and I, I know when it comes to spirituality, we can go the whole evening with that. But uh, getting back to our uh, topic uh, this evening, Ashraf, the extradition uh, conundrum facing the South African government, and it is a conundrum. Uh, you, if, you know, you notice what's happening in this uh, country. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that this government uh, has been uh, compromised uh, in on, on many fronts. And, you know, when you look at South Africa, has also, uh, you know, has uh, this, this, this problem with uh, Bushiri, then it had this problem with the uh, Guptas, and then the best stories come through and, you know, all that. What goes through your mind, uh, Ashraf? I mean, we uh, discussed this topic this evening. So, as you say, it is a conundrum, uh, Shafat. You know, extradition uh, is really a treaty. And it depends on the cooperation of two states. So, in the matter of the Guptas, one expected that the extradition would have been successful. However, the arrest, as I've always said, was but the first step in this very complex process of extradition. So, in the case of the Guptas, there was prima facie evidence of state capture and this whole thing called the New Lane um, investigation or criminal case in the Free State. Based on the charges and, and the evidence led there, it was decided that the state had sufficient information to ask for the extradition. In this case, it was interesting to note that the alleged uh, arrest of the Guptas and the incarceration wasn't all that it was made out to be. Some reports say they were traveling on South African documents. For sure, subsequent to the defeat or the setting aside of the extradition process in the domestic courts of Dubai, um, they were free to travel. But you would recall that one of the first steps that the South African government took was to place them on the Interpol Red Alert. As we know, the Interpol Red Alert is a system that um, places your name on the international police. Interpol means international police. And then they would red flag you. Or oh, there's different kinds of alerts. You know, there's red, there's orange. At, at the red alert stage, you are bound to be arrested by whatever country uh, is associated with Interpol. So they were then arrested and arraigned before the uh, Dubai domestic courts. But the arrest was the first step. Now the South African government had to produce documentation, especially the arrest warrants, that supported their claim for an extradition. Remember, Shafat, there's a difference between extradition 
deportation and repatriation. Extradition is, as I said at the opening, treaty bound. It's a contract between two governments. Deportation is when you fall foul of the immigration laws of that country. In this case, you saw Tabo Vester was in was found to be illegal. And therefore, that status of his made his return to South Africa easier. So they didn't have to go through the extradition process. And in the case of Bushiri, again, Bushiri was here, he skipped bail. He smuggled himself out of South Africa in whichever way, with or without the help of home affairs officials. And then he is now fighting the extradition request from South Africa in the domestic courts of Malawi. And Malawi is his home country, basically. Back to the Gupta matter. So what we then learned around the 18th of March was the Gupta matter was settled already in February. Uh, the matter went three times to uh, the domestic courts of Dubai. And of course, South Africa put its case forward and the Guptas put their case forward. And lo and behold, the, the courts in Dubai said, look, there's not sufficient evidence to, to extradite these people. Principally, there were two things that, that seemed to have been wrong. Basically, on the first charge, um, they, they were speaking of um, uh, corruption and there was a second charge. And the, on the first charge, you said, you gave us an outdated arrest warrant. And on the second charge, you gave us a canceled arrest warrant. So then the, the Dubai court said, look, uh, we, can't, we can't accede to your request. And so basically, whether we like it or not, uh, they've been through the legal process already and they seem to have, you know, defeated the South African government's application for their extradition. Now, the South African government is saying that they're going to appeal it. Uh, I think that it's it's uh, the opportunity has has basically passed. Uh, I don't think the appeal will serve any process, uh, any will would yield any better results. If anything, I can see that they have to start all over again. But that leaves you wondering. The South African government says the Dubai government let us down. The Dubai government is saying no, we acted. We acted in terms of our law. Uh, and remember that this matter started already in 2022, around November, when the uh, Dubai government said, look, we receive your extradition file. Now, you know, the question is, how can something so simple have been overlooked? Southern government says we were in touch with the Dubai government. They should have told us it was uh, what they wanted us or to do further in order to proceed. 
And, uh, you know, they kept quiet until uh, the evening of the 6th of April. Uh, but the matter was already settled in on February 13th. So you can see that the extradition process is, is not foolproof. Um, as I said, in the case of the money laundering um, uh, charges against the Guptas, the court found that the arrest warrant had been cancelled. So, you know, how? I mean, how did you, you, you know, send documentation of that nature? And I think I'm saying that it's dead and buried because you saw that the charges in the new lane, some say Nulani, decision in the free state with uh, six accused, including Mr. Sharma, uh, was set aside. Was There was a discharge, and I'm going to come to that just now, what a discharge means. So extradition is not all that it's made out to be. You would appreciate uh, that sometimes the countries take the law into their own hands. They don't wait for extradition, etc. If you're a suspect or an accused, sometimes they abduct you. But uh, the United States, for example, has a very far-reaching extraterritorial reach. Um, you know, you saw that in the FIFA World Cup arrests. So what had happened there, Shafat, was they said that any charge of corruption in the dollar would mean that the uh, FBI have got universal jurisdiction over you. They can come and collect you from wherever you are. There's no extradition. They're saying you committed fraud in our currency. Therefore, we're now going to, you know, uh, act on it. Here, South Africa took a very, very long time to even reach an agreement with the Dubai government. So it was interesting that when it came to the charge of fraud, according to the Dubai government, Article 3 or Stroke 9 of the extradition treaty states that they had to have a copy of the arrest warrant order. And where it was cancelled, they failed to meet that extradition condition. And they said something more interesting, that even if there had been deficiencies, now this is what our government is saying, our minister, he said that, look, there was even a United Nations Convention against corruption. It was strange in this case that the FBI actually didn't move in. Um, but the South African government is saying that, look, you had a fallback plan. You know, the UAE, uh, the UN Convention Against Corruption allowed uh, UAE to, to request further information. So we don't have a deep understanding of how it happened uh, in Dubai, but the result is still the same. And it was interesting thereafter that the minister was saying, look, we now have a quandary, right? When Atul Gupta brought an application for renewal of his passport, it was refused. And the, and the minister was glowing and he said that, look, you can see the courts. I think it was Judge Kumano in the Pretoria High Court said that 
you cannot expect a person who is fleeing justice or to be a fugitive from justice to demand a passport, although although he is a citizen. So now the minister is, is weighing up, is it wise to remove the citizenship of the Guptas or to keep them on as citizens, but still deprive them of their passports? Then there were rumors that the Gupta brothers had taken out citizenship of a island called Vanuatu in the Pacific. Now, there's a whole lot of schemes in the world where you could get almost instant citizenship, uh, like the Caribbean island program. So one of the nuances of taking up foreign citizenship is that you have to apply to retain South African citizenship before you take up foreign citizenship. In the event that you fail to retain, then there's an automatic loss of citizenship. So the DA last year took this matter to court. And the court sided with the government and said, no, we can't remove the automatic loss of citizenship because there are mechanisms in place for you to preserve your citizenship, which you haven't done. So if you automatically lose it and you haven't done things like they asked you to do, which is to write to the minister to preserve your citizenship, and you have to actually get a letter of consent before you apply. So it's a, it's a warning for people that have taken up Turkish citizenship uh, that they could have automatically lost South African citizenship, which means they're only the citizens of Turkey living in South Africa as ex-citizens. You see, it's quite complex, Shafat. I don't know if I'm making myself clear because these yeah. things are all, all intertwined. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you, you're talking about many things there, but uh, as you said, they're intertwined. And uh, the, uh, the, the the last point you made about uh, Turkey, because we have uh, many friends and uh, relatives uh, that have uh, gone there, and uh, they, you know, that could be quite a, uh, a challenging situation for them and uh, family members also. And uh, you know, talking about uh, extradition, uh, the rendition thing. I mean, you, you you spoke about America, who've been acting as the uh, as the uh, you know the 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 the, the, the world police uh, you know policing the world and uh, suddenly you know putting the uh, boasting about the dollar and suddenly it seems as if you know maybe the dollar will be history soon uh, Ashraf what's your thoughts on that uh, talk talk to us about rendition rendition yeah I think that's a very interesting topic so <clears throat> you know there's a thing called illegal rendition right it is what it is. Um, the famous case in this country is that of a gentleman called Jibai, Rashid Jibai. Rashid Jibai was um, arrested or kidnapped. He disappeared. And then there were records of him leaving on a private jet, not voluntarily, from Vatikloff Air Force, Air Force Base. An application was made to bring him back on the basis that he was illegally rendered. Now, you know, there's a whole lot of cases in the UK of people uh, that were illegally rendered. Now, illegal rendition obviously means that there isn't a legal process and rendition means that you've been removed. And principally, I think the um, uh, some of the guys um, from the UK were speaking recently 
I forget his name, but I think it was like Javed something. Um, and he was talking about how he was visiting Afghanistan. He was a UK citizen. And then the war broke out and he was in Pakistan and he was, uh, he was kidnapped and he was put on a C-180 with a whole lot of other prisoners. They were shackled, they were blindfolded, and um, they were taken to three or four different countries uh, before finally taken to Guantanamo. There, we know that the report subsequently surfaced of the inhumane conditions. They were kept in Bagram Air Force Base, and uh, so basically, uh, there was no legal process involved. In fact, he was speaking quite eloquently of a young man, I forget the country of origin, who's been in Guantanamo for over 22 years without charge. And I mean, you're not charged. You are an enemy of the state of the United States. You're kept on a little part of Cuba, which is on lease uh, to the United States, where they run this uh, facility exclusively, I might add, uh, for Muslim prisoners. And they've been taken and tortured. I think he was speaking of waterboarding of this particular gentleman in four countries, including um, I think it was Morocco, Lithuania, Poland. I can't, I can't be clear because I, I didn't really, you know, concentrate on what he was saying. But it was just horrible that this man has been held for 22 years without charge and has already been paid a half a million dollars in compensation, which he can't get by the countries that uh, allowed their land to be used as part of the um, rendition and torturing. So this method of torturing was a very old method called waterboarding, uh, where they basically held you underwater until you passed out or on, on the point of death. And it's also surprising that despite these claims, uh, the people that admitted uh, to torture, which is really an international crime, are still not touched by the law. So, you know, you get the untouchables and you get the touchables. So illegal rendition is the process of removing a person from the boundaries of a particular country without legal authority. And in this case, we know that um, they were now taken to various prisons around the world and ultimately held as prisoners uh, without trial in Guantanamo. But the interesting thing that this gentleman was saying is, you know, the first thing that happened to them on the plane, on the C-180, was the American uh, guards were, you know, roughing them up and shouting at them and, and even putting a knife on their throat to say, keep quiet. And so they settled down as much as they could and, you know, he was answering a question that, can you read Salah without Wudu? Can you read without uh, Ruku and Sajda? And can you read without facing Qibla? And he says, 
I can tell you the answer. It's all yes, because we've done it. And he narrates that as he sat down and the prisoner next to him then said to him, first question, he says, uh, brother, it's Maghrib time. Have you prayed Maghrib? I mean, these guys are bound, shackled and uh, blindfolded with, with hoods. And there's, you know, all kinds of things happening to them. And they said, no, I haven't. And they made their, their Salah and Jama'ah on the plane without wudu, without the uh, bowing and, you know, sujood and things. And they finished their Maghrib Salah. And then he speaks of, of how, uh, you know, they depended on each other in Guantanamo by prayer learning and teaching Qur'an and, and the experience that it had. And as you know, Shafat, a few guards that were guarding them ultimately became Muslim. So I know we strayed a little, a little bit, but it fell under the topic of illegal rendition mm -hmm. and how then people basically survived this entire ordeal. You know, I was uh, fortunate to have interviewed uh, uh, Muazzam Beg, and uh, there was That's a guard, you told me, uh, <laughs> the, the, the guard. I mean, I met them personally. Uh, who uh, reverted to Islam, he actually came to my home and had meals with me and I took him back to his uh, hotel at Hilton. And this was in, I think, 2007. But uh, talking about this uh, rendition, I mean, there you had uh, Musharraf actually selling, uh, you know, prisoners, uh, I mean, picking up people and selling them. I think for each person he uh, handed over to the U.S., he got $5,000 or something like that for that. And that's a tragedy. You look at Afia Siddiqui, still, uh, you know, languishing in the, in, 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 in the prisons of America. For what? And then you notice that uh, the war on uh, terror was the biggest hoax ever. Everything built on a, built on a lie, Ashraf. And uh, then you find like people like Tony Blair, George uh, Bush, uh, and then you find the, you know, the international uh, courts, uh, you know, in, in The Hague, uh, where they have, uh, you know, selective uh, prosecution people like Tony Blair and I said uh, George Bush and all walking freely, but uh, then they target African leaders, uh, you know, and bring them into uh, into, into court and uh, get them tried and put them into uh, prisons where else, uh, you know, they are very selective in doing that. And uh, so many countries now uh, are thinking of uh, leaving the ICC. What's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? So I had occasion to listen to the chief prosecutor, Fatima Bensudu, a few years ago. And she basically denied that the ICC was targeting um, black African war criminals. Charles Taylor would have come to mind. Um, and that they were not targeting people equally. But I think the facts speak for themselves. Um, part of these people, some of them that you've mentioned, have been discredited for the lies that they spread um, and justifying the attack on Iraq uh, on based on false information. All, all of that is clear, right? And it is, as you say, it's a quandary. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's puzzling that how come there appears to be one set of facts for people that are accused of crimes against humanity. And when somebody else does it, that is now no longer a crime against humanity. So to take up that slack, 
you know, Putin is, a, a, is invited to the BRICS conference here in South Africa, and the Western world is urging South Africa to arrest him. You'll recall that South Africa has got a rich history of trying to arrest uh, fugitives from justice or people's, people that are, are charged with crimes against humanity. Uh, uh, Al-Bashir from Sudan is a good case in point. Uh, he came here. There were civic organizations that brought an application for his arrest. That would have been interesting because it was a sitting head of state. Remember, uh, Shabbat, the genesis of all of this was, uh, was Pinochet uh, of Argentina, who, or, or I think of Chile, and um, he was in London uh, for medical treatment. And based on universal jurisdiction, application was brought for his arrest for war crimes. That was interesting because he was an ex-head of state, not a sitting head of state. Um, and basically, that became the rubber stamp for what we call universal jurisdiction. In this country, I know efforts by the Muslim Lawyers Association that yielded about eight dossiers. Uh, warrants for various people, including Obama, including Narendra Modi, including Blair, including Bush, including a member of the Israeli, I think it was defense uh, attache or what uh, minister. And unfortunately, the results were not as dramatic as the al-Bashir arrest warrant. Uh, on more than one occasion, there appeared to be a lack of cooperation, or as one advocate put it to me, lack of will by the state. So what happens basically is you draw your docket, right? And you have evidence from either victim or somebody with knowledge, and they give an affidavit, and then you put the docket there and you say, I'd like to bring a warrant of arrest for Mr. XYZ when he's in the country to answer to these charges. So again, that arrest warrant is not the end of the case. It is the first step. Now, in the absence of that, people have tried civil um, arrests or, you know, to try uh, civic organizations or private individuals try to effect civilian arrests of some of these perpetrators. Again, not very successful. And uh, on the other side of the world, you see people like Assange, Julian Assange, a journalist, as you know. I mean, he was forcibly removed from the Chilean embassy in London and now under arrest for what uh, the Americans are, are still trying to get him extradited from Britain. Um, so people are now up in arms about Julian Assange. And then uh, uh, it was that corporal that, um, you know, she he was a he now, it's become a she, um, that was part of the American uh, army who basically leaked the information. Um, and so, and so, you know, the saga goes on. Uh, Shafat, it depends, I guess, who considers those who consider themselves to be powerful and above the law. Um, but 
you know, there's always justice at the end of the day, even if it's not, if it's not seen in our lifetime. Um, these things do have a habit of coming around. Um, it is sad to see that no matter how much evidence there is against some of these perpetrators, uh, we look on helplessly um, without the means to do anything. Uh, in a way, it's a little bit disappointing that we expect the people that we call kafir and we criticize as being non-believers, but we turn to them and their legal systems to try and find uh, justice. Um, I think we know the Quranic ayat there. So I think we need to to find out how one is going to do, um, you know, the uh, the thing on your own. I mean, I think a good case in point is um, the Nazi hunters. You know, they haven't forgotten the atrocities of the Nazis, the brutal killing of the Jewish people. And they, they go after these Nazi leaders. Be it a guard at a, at a camp, or be it, you know, somebody along the way. And irrespective of the age of the person, there you see extraterritorial abductions and trials held, and they find them guilty. I mean, Eichmann was, was traced down to South America and tried and then executed. So there are people that do whatever they need to do. But somehow, I don't know, we seem not to be able to, and despite the numbers that we have, we uh, seem not to be able to, to do anything. And then we do quite happily, you know, wanting to hand it over to third parties to do for us. I think maybe there's a, a little bit of an introspection required, Shabbat. You know, Ashraf, uh, whilst you talk about that, you know, and uh, the, the, the irony of the whole situation is, uh, you know, we talk about uh, diplomatic immunity. Now, that uh, for me is a troublesome spot, a very, uh, you know, a spot where it allows uh, some of these diplomats, you know, that are prone to criminality uh, to get away with impunity. I mean, you look at these, uh, that, that, that gold mafia, you know, story coming out and uh, uh, who's implicated at the highest level. I mean, government officials and so forth. I mean, you go to Dubai, uh, you, it's supposed to be a, uh, uh, you know, airport with top uh, security and so forth. It seems like uh, Dubai is a safe haven for uh, criminality and those uh, people that are uh, doing, uh, you know, mafia work or criminal work and uh, those uh, that are breaking laws left, right and center. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that, Ashraf? The way I understand uh, Dubai in particular is that there is no exchange control. Uh, restrictions. There's no questions about how much you can bring and who brings it in. What the Dubai authorities are saying is that you come here and you invest. I mean, obviously, you're investing in the financial system. And, you know, you're also using their banks and systems for huge international transactions. Um, they know different from some of the tax havens. Uh, you remember the famous Swiss bank accounts of old uh, and some of these offshore tax-free havens. No questions asked. And, you know, it's cleverly done, Shafar. You don't bring the money in your own name. 
you bring it through companies. And the companies are then listed in other jurisdictions and other jurisdictions, and it's all kind of watered down. It's diluted to such an extent you can't actually find who the true owners of the company are. That's that's what the Panama Papers was all about, Shafat. They managed to, to go and find which government official in which country had transferred how much of money. And as you know, in the Panama Papers, they were using a law firm. And, you know, so, so the whole thing was, was, had left a paper trail, but when the paper trail was, uh, was breached, then the whole thing became evident. So to me, there's not a single country that has not been tarnished. I'd be very, very surprised to find out if uh, there was one. Um, back to the Hijaz, I mean, some of the old, old diplomats uh, that had served in London, United States, etc., and some of their children are still in the system, uh, were known to have uh, had vast, vast sums of money. You know, you'll also recall a rumor that uh, Gaddafi had something like $6 billion in cash. And that was, that had disappeared or made its way to South Africa and whatever else happened. So I think, Shavad, you know, the, the urge for these rulers or government officials, wherever they are, uh, not to put their hands into the cookie jar. <laughs> it's a very difficult urge, Shepard. Mm. Uh, they end up buying properties in London for millions of pounds. I mean, the Gaddafi regime had numerous properties in London, very, very expensive properties. And some of you, sometimes you see the most impoverished nations in Africa, but the leaders have got very, very large bank accounts. And uh, it seems silly at the end where they're buying cars and estates and shopping at Harrods. Uh, that, that, that's all the enjoyment that this uh, illegal money can bring. You know, it, it's almost, uh, uh, you know, it, it's almost childish. If if you think of it, Shafat, that all you had is a meal and a very expensive bottle of wine and, you know, you drove in the Land Rover or in the S-Class or a Rolls-Royce and, and you went to sleep in a 10-star bed in a $100 million or pound. I mean, you and I both know that the solace of the soul doesn't lie. Uh, in in consumerism, because the soul is a lot more deeper, is a lot more clear, cleverer. You know, Shabbat, they've actually found this is quite amazing. That there's, you know, they say the, you know, zikr Allah bi zikr light that my nukulu. That, you know, they found that the heart has a special kind of cell that almost mimics the brain cell. As you know, the memory and things is all in the brain. 
But can you imagine they actually found now there are special cells in the heart that have a memory. So that leads directly, you know, uh, to, to, the, to the evidence that the heart has to be cleaned, has to be preserved. And the polish of the heart is, is obviously zikr because it is in the zikr of the heart, uh, by the heart that, that, that you find solace, uh, you know, with, with the creator. So at the end of the day, no matter how many years it takes and how many meals they had and what they ate, and it's all really a memory. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's irrelevant, if I can put it that way. Yeah, Ashraf, a very, uh, you know, interesting indeed. And uh, mashallah, bringing up a brilliant point, uh, you know, the uh, forgetfulness of death is the rust of the heart. And if you want to polish the heart, hey, get into zikr mode and alhamdulillah, polish that heart with the zikrullah. You know, whilst you're talking about the guptas and, uh, you know, uh, it seems as if uh, they will not be extradited and so forth. Uh, what happens to Zuma then? I mean, uh, will he be vindicated? So I don't think the conviction of Zuma depends on Gupta. You remember, Zuma refused to come to the commission to give evidence. He was jailed for that. Subsequently to being jailed, which is the end of that contempt process, he was freed by uh, the, the commissioner of correctional services. And that whole thing led to an inquiry on whether, uh, a review actually, on whether the decision was correct or not. And whether he's used his discretion correctly or not. The fact of the matter is, the man was in jail for contempt and he's out. Now comes multiple charges. The ones that he's facing is uh, the arms, uh, uh, trial with Tint and, um, and so now he is, I think, in his 80s and he's still fighting on. He's now brought an application to remove um, Billy Downer as the prosecutor. And we know that the basis of which he's saying is that his medical records, which is a doctor's letter, was leaked to the press. Uh, without permission of the court and try to the actual hearing. So that is his complaint of reasonable bias. And um, well, even the judge Pete Kuhn um, recused himself from the matter. So the ex-president, Mr. Zuma, said he wanted his day in court. Uh, he's having his day in court. Some people look at that and they say that's a stunned uh, tactic is to delay the inevitable as, as long as possible and then in the end there's uh, exhaustion all round and um, that's the end of the matter. But certainly the New Lane matter was a big surprise. Uh, remember I said I'll come back to it. So what had happened there was uh, they were all arraigned uh, for trial and at the end of the state's case, the defense applied for what you call a 174, which is an application for discharge 
of the charges against the accused without the accused giving evidence. Such an application is brought when the state, in the eyes of the defense, has failed to prove its case or put sufficient evidence that will likely lead to a conviction. In this case, the judge agreed. The judge was very disappointed in how the NPA as well as the investigators had gathered the evidence. Um, there was no real evidence in the judge's view. It was all like hearsay and secondhand and unreliable. And so you saw that the six accused were discharged. Now, once you're discharged, you can't be charged again, Shepard. If a charge is withdrawn uh, because the state was not ready and documents might have been missing and they took a bit long and the charges are withdrawn after a period of appearances and you know, it's against your constitutional right the matter just drag on, those charges can always be reinstated. But once it is discharged, that amounts to a, plea, a finding of not guilty and you can't be charged again because that will be in breach of the double jeopardy rule. So you can see, I think, from Mr. Zuma's point of view, there's certainly uh, lots and lots of interesting litigation that he's going through and lots of side litigations that also have an impact. I mean, technically now the Guptas are not charged with anything. And uh, they're free to travel the world and, you know, quite uh, uh, without fear because there can't be another arrest or Interpol red alert. That, that matter has been set aside. They might find something else to charge them with. But that would have certainly been uh, the icing on the cake, so to speak. But it was disappointingly not to be so. Uh, I think the president also, ex-president, will also be taking note of that judgment. But uh, yeah, he's still continuing. Although you know he's quite senior in his years, seems to have sufficient uh, energy uh, to carry on with it. I must tell you, there sometimes. The miracle of medical sciences is astonishing. I mean, you could be on death's door in one day and then, you know, you can turn around and recover your health. Absolutely a miracle. <laughs> Absolutely, Ashraf, a brilliant conversation with you as uh, usual, garnishing uh, your legal show with also a lot of our spirituality. Allah bless you for that. And uh, perhaps your parting words uh, this evening. Shafat, as always, you know, one, I mean, I first have to thank you, your producers and the station, uh, you know, the people that made this possible. Um, and of course, our dear listeners, without them, we won't be able to share anything. Uh, it'll just be a conversation between two people. But the greater audience out there uh, is, is the people that we appreciate. So... You know, for me as well, it's a great opportunity to be able to learn from you and to talk to you on the, you know, on interesting levels and to exchange our ideas. The parting words are always something that I recently uh, read and appreciated. I didn't know this about the Surah Yasin. You know, I always say read the Yasin because in it is is a great uh, uh, is a great secret. But I heard a, a very wise Sheikh said that. You know, Yasin has got so many blessings that if you only knew the value of Yasin, just the two words, 
you'll be rendered into silence. Interestingly, you know, we know we we heard it's the heart of the Quran. You know, there's other descriptions. But have you ever asked yourself why we read it particularly when people are dying or have died? So what I learned was quite interesting. It said that the soul doesn't know it's actually died. It's observing all these things and people around there, and, you know, people are crying. And, and when you read the Yasin, it actually reminds the soul that it has left the body. And it then calms it down. And then it comes between the, the sheet and the, and the body. And it stays there until, you know, you do the kusal and, and you do the burial. Um, so, so it was interesting to actually understand why the Yasin is important, because it has one of those benefits. So that's what I wanted to share with you today uh, about something else that I had uh, listened to and, and learned about it. So keep up the Yasin, keep up the duas. Obviously, the zikr, which is something else that we learned about, it brings you closer to your creator. It's an answer to all your duas and uh, whatever your fears are. And uh, if, if it choose a zikr that is most suitable, some people love the Nurud, which is actually uh, a very, very great way of uh, remembering Allah and the Rasul. So also remember us in, in your prayer and the Ummah in large and, you know, ask Allah for ease. You have a lovely, beautiful evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.